Hello, and welcome to the Alcohol Podcast. The podcast says, run to the hills, run for your life. <laughs> I'm EJ. I'm Beth. And tonight, I believe, Beth, that it's your turn to uh, get us rolling. It is, and I decided tonight I wanted to talk about popping tags. Good will! <laughs> you got it. I decided I was going to look into the history of Goodwill, one of my favorite places to go. You wear your granddad's clothes. <laughs> I do! And I didn't even have to buy them at Goodwill. Oh, God. <laughs> this is going to be all right. <laughs> all right. Are we, are we going to have some sort of, like, turf war here? Be, like, stepping on the toes of, like, some other thrift stores or what? Um, actually, it started out, I wanted to look into a history of just second-hand stores, but that turned out to be too broad of a subject, and Goodwill had the most information about their history, so... Of course they did. I centered in on them. They did. Because my very favorite second-hand store isn't even a chain second-hand store. It's a... A local? Yeah. Fair enough. But I have found some very good deals at many different Goodwills. One time I bought a snowboard at a Goodwill. It was awesome. And then somebody borrowed it, and then they moved and, like, lost my snowboard. How do you lose a snowboard? I remember that. The butthurt is strong with me. Um, Goodwill was founded in 1902 in Boston by a Methodist minister named Reverend Edgar J. Helms. I wondered if it had a religious uh, initiation of some sort. It did originally. And... I had issues coming up with a date where the religious factor cut out on this right. and it became just... A corporation? Yeah. They gave hints at it, but I could not find a definite date where church left and money took over. Right. Um, the Reverend actually started by going to the wealthier areas in the Boston location and collecting used household goods and clothing. And then he would take those items and train or hire those who were poor to mend or repair them so they could be sold or in the learning fixing process that those people could take these items home themselves, which led to the goodwill philosophy of a hand up, not a hand out. Nice. Yeah. And goodwill, I knew they had some other things going on other than just their awesome secondhand stores. But most of the people that work in their store locations still are off of the same philosophy that right on. it's people that have a hard time finding work or don't have the training to do anything that... I'm all about helping people, you know? I mean, I think that's a great thing. Well, look at my second job, how many people I've had assist me that needed a couple bucks that, yeah, you know, just because they're not full-time employees, they're like, I need... $30 to pay my light bill and come run a shovel. Come, you know, do something. We'll get, we'll get you some money. We're good. It's an important thing. Like, for as many people are complaining about the laziness of people, there's just as many people that wish they could find a job but right. don't have any sort of qualifications to get one. Can't get a job because I don't have experience. Can't no. get experience because I don't have a job. And then people are like, work at McDonald's. Well, where we live, the closest McDonald's is 20 miles away. It's kind of hard to get to your job if you don't have a car. Because yep. you don't have money. I understand. 
Goodwill as we know it today did not start off with that name, though. Was it Badwill? <laughs> oh, no, no, Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> I do. And you would not believe how many times that movie popped up while I was researching. <laughs> I feel that that serves you right. Um, in 1905, <coughs> Reverend Helms and his partner Fred Moore incorporated the nonprofit charitable corporation with the name Morgan Memorial Cooperative Industries and Stores Incorporated. That is a, a real mouthful. Mm-hmm. But they were up and coming with the times, and they were looking for donations anywhere they could get them. And in 1909, the second-hand business took the next step and started using motorized trucks for donation pickups. Instead of going door-to-door with a bag and knocking and asking, well, you could call them up. Well, it started in 1909. 1902. 1902. Uh, it would have been most likely a horse with a, a wagon then. Because the automobile wasn't really that prevalent, let alone a truck. Well, at that when it started, pr- compared to where you're at now, Goodwill so. has always done a very good job of trying to keep up with the times. Well, as I'll lead into later. Macklemore. <laughs> um, since things were progressing along so well for Reverend Helms, people from other cities and states were coming to observe and learn from his model. And representatives from Brooklyn, New York, hit it off so well with the Reverend that they joined forces, and his company took on their name of Goodwill Industries when they joined up. For your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. (laughs) I I can see it in my head, them holding their reins up. That's what happened with this. That's how Goodwill became such a giant... You're actually a superhero. When many of the veterans were returning from World War One and needing assistance, the government passed the Vocational Rehabilitation Act in 1918, and Goodwill Industries took up on this. And they can, as they continued to expand their efforts with helping others, they were offering positions to veterans who didn't know what to do after they came back. Well, there was a lot of people coming back and i'm sure there wasn't a, a lot of jobs even if in world war one you know i mean world war one was just right at the industrial revolution really the, the early 1900s and 19 teens actually but i mean you didn't have factories like you had factories in world war two correct um by the 1920s there were 15 different goodwills set up offering assistance And with the expansion of the not-for-profit, they switched their slogan to Not Charity, But a Chance, which Goodwill, as I found out through this, has had a whole bunch of different slogans. Oh, I'm sure you've got to change the slogan up every once in a while. But this one, again, Not Charity, But a Chance, you know, I like that. Offering hope and help, and I love Goodwill shopping. I find some good deals. In 1921, the Goodwill store's receipts topped $1 million for the very first time that year. Wow. Yeah, in 1921. That's a lot of money in today's money. Do you remember what else happened in 1921, though? Yeah. I want to talk about it. (laughs) The stock market crashed. I want to talk about it. And Goodwill was there to help out thousands of people who became destitute. You know what else happened? 
What else happened? That stupid amendment that I hate. <laughs> well, let's move on then, because you seem to be getting a little agitated. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941... You jumped ahead 20 years. I did jump ahead 20 years. We dodged Prohibition and the Depression, guys. <laughs> well, I... Goodwill was there through the Depression. They probably uh, didn't have so much to do with Prohibition. There's a Goodwill speakeasy. <laughs> Give us your secondhand liquor. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. Yeah, all the half bottles, you know. Huh. Goodwill changed their slogan again in 1941, though. Um, and they were salvaged for victory then. Drop off anything metallic. Stuff like that. They also participated in a program called Bundles for Europe. And the program sent lots and lots of care packages over to the allied countries of used clothing and other right. necessities right that those people lost through the war. Um, in the 1950s, many celebrities did spots on different medias asking the public to donate their used items to Goodwill. And their request was answered like no other. The public gave and gave and gave in support of their different actors soliciting this invitation awesome. to give. Did Elvis? I didn't check and see which celebrities actually asked, but I'm doubting Elvis did. Why do you like him so much then? He's awesome. He should be more charitable. <laughs> um, by the 1970s, see, uh, we jumped again. Yeah, I got some uh, Hawaiian shirts. Goodwill had created. Put them next to your Aunt Jemima. Shh. <laughs> oh, I made her laugh. Goodwill had created thousands of jobs and helped raise thousands of dollars in revenue by contracting with federal and state governments as well as private, the private industry sector, trying to find jobs and other that's, opportunities. That's very cool that they did that. They were also very big into working early on with um, mental disability issues. And they were big into helping finding jobs for anybody that wanted to have a job, no matter That's good. the setback that they right. might have been born with. Right. Whether it's a physical disability or a mental disability, there's still a job that, yes. you know, if they wanted it, they could place them. Yes. And whether it was in one of their stores or whether they were able to find something. Right. They were very, yeah. very big. Uh, you guys can't see Beth's face, but like she's beaming and very. Like, she loves Goodwill more now that she's telling me about it, and somebody else is learning that how very, very they are. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, and then she rolled her eyes at me. To keep up with the times in the 1980s. Goodwill started introducing computers right away, whether it be in their training courses that they were offering people or trying to integrate them into their stores. Like, already in the 80s, they wanted to stay on top of the times and be able to train people for different like, positions available. They're like, here, fix this flat-top Pac-Man machine. They're the electronic ones, you know? I mean, I imagine that that was probably something they did. I don't know. I'm just thinking 80s arcade became a thing and you can't not everybody's going to be a tailor or a well i have noticed that in my goodwilling now it's not so much that they fix things anymore to sell well no 
No, most of the things are as is. They all have pretty little stickers on there that this is sold as is, and there are no returns, and well, you, buy at your own risk. You do go to the Goodwills more than I do, but the technology is advanced to a degree at this point where there are so many branches of technology that it's really going to be hard to stay, you know, up to date with everything. If somebody donates a, a cell phone from 2007 or prior, you know, there's a chance that it's analog compared to the digital ones or something like that. Or com- just a television from when they converted uh, the... Goodwill will not take televisions, especially the big boxy ones. Most of them well, have signs posted because nobody wants to buy those. Well, that's fine. I'm just saying any technology where there's a, a big jump all of a sudden. But, you know, there's always something fixed or at least repurposed you know build a better mousetrap but it's still a mousetrap pinterest has also helped the secondhand industry oh i'm sure there's all kinds of ideas of crafty stuff you can do look at this ostrich that i made out of a potty chair six spoons and (laughs) like i don't know gorilla glue there's some really great ideas on pinterest there's some really 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 stupid ones Look, we took this old tire and turned it into a koi pond. We buried it in the ground. Little known fact, folks, you bury a tire, um, the uh, expansion and contraction, that tire will work its way back to the surface. Don't bury tires in your yard. You'll just regret it in 15, 20 years. And your your fish will die. Dead fish aren't funny, Beth. Fount of information, my husband is. Well, it would have been a fount, but all the water leaked out because the tire came out of the ground. Um, by 2001, Goodwill had topped $185 billion that, that was a good year because everyone was still alive from Y2K. <laughs> and in 2002, the company celebrated its 100th anniversary. <laughs> That's kind of obvious, actually. <laughs> um... <laughs> That's pretty much all the information on Goodwill, but I do have a list. In, in of... 1935, they celebrated their what anniversary? 35. Don't make me do math. But I do have a list of some strange things found at Goodwill. You. Me. You were found at Goodwill. You didn't find me at Goodwill. I'm just found at Goodwill a That's lot. That's what I'm saying. That's a strange thing. Um, people have found coffins, dentures. Prosthetic limbs. Why, why you got underwear? Pets' ashes, used undergarments. I understand that everybody probably, uh, the vast majority of people want some underwear, but I mean, if you're going to splurge <laughs> on yourself and maybe treat yourself, don't have a cup of coffee. Buy some clean new underwear, guys. I mean, I don't care if you, you know, buy jeans, t-shirts, hats, uh, <laughs> hats if you're you know what lies but seriously not the underwear or the socks come on you don't know what kind of sweaty beast they could have been mine but i don't donate my underwear or socks to the goodwill <laughs> not okay you use you use old underwear to wash dishes <laughs> ask your grandma she's insane <laughs> my wife didn't make a joke there even though she laughed my grandmother's insane, and that happened. Anybody want to go to Grandma's for dinner? She's a sweet old lady, though. I hope they're washed. Anywho, anything else, Beth? 
No, not unless you can tell me your best poppin' tags other than your snowboard. The best poppin' tags ever? Yeah, one time, I found a brand new Transformer. Brand new. When I was a little kid and Transformers were popular. Did you get to get it? I bought it with my own money and it was, it was, I don't remember, I think it was Starscream, actually. Because I had a few, I didn't have a lot of Transformers, but. And it was a big one, too. It wasn't one of the little ones. It was a full-sized, like, monster Sweet. one. I'm pretty sure it was, yeah, it was Starscream. Thinking back now, I had to access the memory banks. And I had enough money for it, so. I was rolling. I was a happy little boy. That's awesome. Yeah. But, I suppose you'd like me to take a turn, wouldn't you? Yeah. So, Beth, do you have a favorite short story? Short story? Yeah, favorite short story. I have two. One of them is uh, Lightington versus the Ants. And the other one is The Most Dangerous Game. I don't think I do have a favorite short story. Well, The Most Dangerous Game is... Most people have probably heard it or at least seen something inspired by it. And I found out today that it's public domain and has been since 2009. Uh, the author, Richard Connell, died in 1949, and it's the author's lifetime plus 60 years for a short story. So, this tickles me. This tickles me, because I am going to read you guys The Most Dangerous Game. Have you ever read The Most Dangerous Game? I don't think so. You don't think so? Well, be prepared to be bedazzled. There's suspense, danger, <gasps> excitement, and Cossacks. And what? Cossacks. You don't know what a Cossack is. I'm not going to explain it. Think, think like a... The Hessian in, in the... Oh, okay. Kind of like that, but not German. I think Cossacks are uh, like Slavs or Russian, okay? <laughs> My word. Sashes and... See, look, I'm learning things already. Off there to the right somewhere is a large island, said Whitney. It's a rather mysterious... What island is it? Rainsford asked. <clears throat> The old charts call it Ship Trap Island, Whitney replied. A suggestive name, isn't it? Sailors have a curious dread of the place. I don't know why. Some superstition. Can't see it, remarked Rainsford, trying to peer through the dank tropical night that was palpable as it pressed its thick, warm blackness upon the yacht. You've good eyes, said Whitney, with a laugh. I've seen you pick off a moose moving in the brown fall bush at 400 yards, but even you can't see four miles or so, on a moonless Caribbean night. Nor four yards, admitted Rainsford. Ugh! It's like moist black velvet. Moist. Moist. Do you have an obsession with becoming a sailor? I need to know now. I want to go on a boat. Yeah. I'm on a boat! That's, that's not the same as Mackle. But... <laughs> he was in that song! Alright, alright, alright. It'll be light enough and real, promised Whitley. Whitney. We should make it in a few days. I hope the jaguar guns have come from Purdy's, and we should have some good hunting up in the Amazon. Great sport hunting. The best sport in the world, agreed Rainsford. For the hunter, admitted Whitney, not for the jaguar. Don't talk rot, Whitney, said Rainsford. You're a big game hunter, not a philosopher. Who cares how the jaguar feels? Perhaps the jaguar does, observed Whitney. Bah! They have no understanding. Even so, I'd rather think they understand one thing, fear. 
The fear of pain and the fear of death. Nonsense, laughed Rainsford. This hot weather is making you soft, Whitney. Be a realist. The world is made up of two classes, the hunters and the huntees. Luckily, you and I are hunters. You think we've passed the island yet? <clears throat> I can't tell in the dark. I hope so. Why, said Rainford. The place has a reputation. A bad one. Cannibals? suggested Rainsford. Hardly. Even cannibals wouldn't live in such a godforsaken place. But it's gotten into sailor lore somehow. Didn't you notice the crew's nerves seemed a bit jumpy today? They were a bit strange, now that you mention it. Even Captain Nielsen, yes, even that tough-minded old Swede, who'd go up to the devil himself and ask him for a light. Those fishy blue eyes held a look I never saw before. All I could get out of him was, This place is evil name among seafaring men, sir. Then he said to me, very gravely, Don't you feel anything, as if the air about us is actually poisonous. Now you mustn't laugh when I tell you this. I did feel something, like a sudden chill. There was no breeze. The sea was flat as a plate glass window, and we were drawn near the island then. What I felt was a, a mental chill, a sort of sudden dread. Pure imagination, said Rainsford. One superstitious sailor can taint the whole ship's company with fear. Maybe, but sometimes I think sailors have an extra sense that tells them when they are in danger. Sometimes I think evil is a tangible thing, with wavelengths just as sound and light have. An evil place can, so to speak, broadcast vibrations of evil. Anyhow, I'm glad we're getting out of this zone. Well, I think I'll turn in now, Rainsford. I'm not sleepy, said Rainsford. I'm going to smoke another pipe up on the afterdeck. Good night, then, Rainsford. See you at breakfast. Right. Good night, Whitney. What do you think so far? I think you're plotting to run off and become a sailor. Rainsford and Whitney are not sailors. They're just riding on the boat. You're going to run off and do something on a boat because all you talk about anymore is boats and that one wrestler. I can't remember his name. We were just going to have to think about it. Hmm. Can't help you. Uh, I'm just dying for some water time in warm weather. And I will drink beer on a boat. <laughs> there was no sound in the night as Rainsford sat there, but the muffled throb of its engines, or the engines that drove the yacht swiftly through the darkness, and the swish and ripple of the wash of the propeller. <clears throat> Rainsford, reclining in a steamer chair, indolently puffed on his favorite briar. The sensuous drowsiness of the night was on him. It's so dark, he thought, that I could sleep without closing my eyes. The night would be my eyelids. An abrupt sound startled him. Off to the right he heard it, and his ears, expert in such matters, could not be mistaken. Again he heard the sound, and again, somewhere off in the blackness, someone had fired a gun three times. Rainsford sprang up and moved quickly to the rail, mystified. He strained his eyes in the direction from which the reports had come, but it was like trying to see through a blanket. He leapt upon the rail and balanced himself there. To get a greater elevation, his pipe striking a rope was knocked from his mouth. He lunged for it. A short, hoarse cry came from his lips as he realized he had reached too far and lost his balance. The cry was pinched off short as the blood-warm waters of the Caribbean Sea dosed over his head. He struggled up to the surface and tried to cry out, but the wash from the speeding yacht slapped him in the face and the salt water in his open mouth made him gag and strangle. Desperately, he struck out with strong strokes. Strong strokes is hard to say. <laughs> after the receding lights of the yacht, but he stopped before he had swum 50 feet. 
a certain cool-headedness had come to him. It was not the first time he'd been in a tight place. There was a chance that his cries could be heard by someone aboard the yacht, but the chance was slender and grew more slender as the yacht raced on. He wrestled himself out of his clothes and shouted with all his power. The lights of the yacht became faint and ever-vanishing fireflies. Then they were blotted out entirely by the night. <clears throat> Rainsford remembered the shots. They had come from the right, and doggedly he swam in that direction, swimming with slow, deliberate strokes, conserving his strength. For a seemingly endless time he fought the sea. He began to count his strokes. He could do possibly a hundred more, and then Rainsford heard a sound. It came out of the darkness, a high screaming sound, the sound of an animal in an extremity of anguish and terror. He did not recognize the animal that made the sound. He did not try to. With fresh vitality, he swam towards the sound. He heard it again, then it was cut short by another noise, a crisp staccato. Pistol shot, muttered Rainsford, swimming on. Ten minutes of determined effort brought another sound to his ears, the most welcome he had ever heard. The muttering and growling of the sea breaking on a rocky shore. He was almost on the rocks before he saw them. On a night less calm, he would have been shattered against them. With his remaining strength, he dragged himself from the swirling waters. Jagged crags appeared to jut up into the opaqueness. He forced himself upward, hand over hand, grasping. His hands raw, he reached a flat place at the top. Dense jungle came down to the very edge of the cliffs. What perils that tangle of trees and underbrush might hold for him did not concern Rainsford just then. All he knew was that he was safe from his enemy, the sea and the utter weariness that was on him. He flung himself down at the jungle edge and tumbled headlong into the deepest sleep of his life. When he opened his eyes, he knew from the position of the sun that it was late in the afternoon. Sleep had given him a new vigor. A sharp hunger was picking at him. He looked about him almost cheerfully. Where are... are were there pistol shots? Or, where they are pistol shots? Jeez Louise. I read it like three times. Where there are pistol shots, there are men. Where there are men, there is food, he thought. But what kind of men, he wondered. In so forbidding a place, an unbroken front of snarled and ragged jungle fringed the shore. He saw no sign of a trail through the closely knit web of weeds and trees. It was easier to go along the shore, and Rainsford floundered along by the water. Not far from where he landed, he stopped. Some wounded thing, by the evidence, a large animal had thrashed about in the underbrush. The jungle weeds were crushed down, and the moss was lacerated. I like lacerated. Me too. I lacerated. <laughs> One patch of weeds was stained crimson. A small, glittering object not far away caught Rainsford's eye. He picked it up. It was an empty cartridge. A twenty-two. he remarked. That's odd. It must have been a fairly large animal, too. The hunter had his nerve with him to tackle it with a light gun. It's clear that the brute put up a fight. I suppose the first three shots I heard was when the hunter flushed his quarry and wounded it. The last shot was when he trailed it here and finished it. He examined the ground closely and found what he had hoped to find. The print of hunting boots. <clears throat> they pointed along the cliff in the direction he had been going. Eagerly, he hurried along now, slipping on a rotten log or a loose stone, but making headway. Night was beginning to settle down on the island. Bleak darkness was blacking out the sea and jungle when Rainsford sighted the lights. He came upon them as he turned a crook in the coastline, and his first thought was that he had come upon a village. For there were many lights, but as he forged along, he saw, to his great astonishment, that all the lights were in one enormous building. 
a lofty structure, with pointed towers plunging upward into the gloom. His eyes made out the shadowy outlines of a palatial chateau. It was set high on a bluff, and on three sides of it, cliffs dived down to where the sea licked greedy lips in the shadows. Mirage, thought Rainsford, but it was no mirage, he found. When he opened the tall spiked iron gate, the stone steps were real enough. The massive door with the leering gargoyle for a knocker was real enough, yet above it hung an air of unreality. He lifted the knocker, and it creaked up stiffly, as if it had never before been used. He let it fall, and it startled him with its booming loudness. He thought he heard steps within. The door remained closed. Again, Rainsford lifted the heavy knocker and let it fall. The door opened then, opened as suddenly as if it were on a spring, and Rainsford stood blinking in a river of glaring gold light that poured out. The first thing Rainsford's eyes discerned was the largest man Rainsford has ever seen. A gigantic creature, solidly made and black-bearded to the waist. In his hand, the man held a long-barreled revolver, and he was pointing it straight at Rainsford's heart. Out of the snarl of beard, two small eyes regarded Rainsford. Don't be alarmed, said Rainsford with a smile, which he hoped was disarming. I'm no robber. I fell off a yacht. My name is Sanger Rainsford, or Sanger, but I like Sanger better, of New York City. The menacing look in the eyes did not change, the revolver pointing as rigidly as if the giant were a statue. He gave no sign that he understood Rainsford's words or that he even heard them. He was dressed in a uniform, a black uniform, trimmed with gray astrakhan. I'm saying a Rainsford of New York, Rainsford began again. I fell off a yacht. I am hungry. The man's only answer was to raise his thumb to the hammer of his revolver. Then Rainsford saw the man's free hand go to his forehead in a military salute. And then he saw him click his heels together and stand at attention. Another man was coming down the broad marble steps an erect slender man in evening clothes. He advanced to Rainsford and held out his hand. In a cultivated voice, marked by a slight accent that gave it added precision and deliberateness, he said, It is a very great pleasure and honor to welcome Mr. Sanger Rainsford, the celebrated hunter, to my home. Automatically, Rainsford shook the man's hand. I've read your book about hunting snow leopards in Tibet, you see, explained the man. I am General Zaroff. Rainsford's first impression was that the man was singularly handsome. His second was that there was an original, almost bizarre quality about the general's face. He was a tall man, past middle age, for his hair was vivid white, but his thick eyebrows and pointed military mustache were as black as the night from which Rainsford had come. His eyes, too, were black and very bright. He had high cheekbones, a sharp-cut nose, a spare, dark face, the face of a man who is used to giving orders, the face of an aristocrat. Turning to the giant in uniform, the general made a sign. The giant put away his pistol and saluted, and withdrew. Ivan is an incredibly strong fellow, remarked the general, but he has the misfortune of being deaf and dumb, a simple fellow, but, I'm afraid, like all his race, a bit of a savage. Is he Russian? He is a Cossack, said the general, and his smile showed red lips and pointed teeth, and so am I. Come, he said. We shouldn't be chatting here. We can talk later. Now you want clothes, food, and rest, and you shall have them. This is the most restful spot. Ivan reappeared, and the general spoke to him with lips that moved, but gave no sound. Follow Ivan, if you please, Mr. Rainsford, said the general. I was about to have my dinner when you came. I'll wait for you. 
You'll find that my clothes will fit you, I think. What do you think so far? It's interesting. It is interesting. I've never heard this story before. Really? Well, I am a bit of a fan of it. And it is a little longer than most short stories, I suppose. But I do like it. Any thoughts about what's going on? He's going to hunt him. Well, that's a pretty solid guess, I think. Yeah. It's like that one movie. I can't remember the name of it. That's okay. It was to a huge beam ceiling bedroom with a canopied bed big enough for six men that Rainsford followed the silent, silent giant. There's another tongue twister. I read this to myself quietly a couple times today. <laughs> I guess I should have read it out loud. Ivan laid out an evening suit, and Rainsford, as he put it on, noticed that it came from a London tailor who ordinarily cut and sewed for none below the rank of Duke. The dining room to which Ivan conducted him was in many ways remarkable. There was a medieval magnificence about it. It suggested a baronial hall of feudal times with its oaken panels, its high ceilings, its vast refectory tables where two score men could sit down to eat. About the hall were mounted heads of many animals, lions, tigers, elephants, moose, bears, larger or more perfect specimens Rainsford had never seen. At the great table, the general was sitting alone. You'll have a cocktail, Mr. Rainsford, he suggested. The cocktail was surpassingly good, and Rainsford noted the table appointments were of the finest... I like cocktails. <laughs> the linen, the crystal, the silver, and the china. They were eating borscht, the rich red soup with whipped cream so dear to Russian palates. Half apologetically, General Zaroff said... We do our best to preserve the amenities of civilization here. Please forgive any lapses. We are well off the beaten track, you know. Do you think the champagne has suffered from its long ocean trip? Not in the least, declared Rainsford. He was finding the general a most thoughtful... I like champagne. <laughs> affable host. A true cosmopolite. Yeah. When's the last time you heard that word? Never. Yeah. Do you think that you would drink a cosmopolitan with a cosmopolite? You would. I like cosmopolitans. <laughs> but there was one small trait of the generals that made Rainsford uncomfortable. Whenever he looked up from his plate, he found the general studying him, appraising him narrowly. Perhaps, said General Zaroff, you were surprised that I recognized your name. You see, I read all books on hunting published in English, French, and Russian. I have but one passion in my life, Mr. Rainsford, and it is the hunt. You have some wonderful heads here, said Rainsford, as he ate a particularly well-cooked filet mignon. The Cape Buffalo is the largest I have ever seen. Oh, that fellow, yes, he was a monster. Did he charge you? Hurled me against a tree, said the general. Fractured my skull, but I got the brute. I've always thought, said Rainsford, that Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous of all big game. For a moment, the general did not reply. He was smiling, his curious, red-lipped smile. And then he said slowly, No, you are wrong, sir. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous big game. He sipped his wine. Here in my preserve on the island, he said in the same slow tone, I hunt more dangerous game. Rainsford expressed his surprise. Is there big game on the island? The general nodded. The biggest. Really? Oh, it isn't here naturally, of course. I have... To stock the island. 
What have you imported, General? Rainsford asked. Tigers? The General smiled. No. Hunting tigers ceased to interest me some years ago. I exhausted their possibilities, you see. No thrill left in tigers. No real danger. I live for danger, Mr. Rainsford. The General took from his pocket a gold cigarette case and offered his guest a long black cigarette with a silver tip. It was perfumed and gave off a smell like incense. We will have some capital hunting, you and I, said the General. I shall be most glad to have your society. But what game? began Rainsford. I'll tell you, said the General. You'll be amused, I know. I think I may say, in all modesty, that I have done a rare thing. I have invented a new sensation. May I pour you another glass of port? Thank you, General. I don't know that I've ever had port. The General filled both glasses and said, God makes some men poets. Some he makes kings. Some beggars. Me? He made a hunter. My hand was made for the trigger. My father said. He was a very rich man with a quarter of a million acres in Crimea. And he was an ardent sportsman. When I was only five years old, he gave me a little gun, specially made, me in, Mos or specially made in Moscow for me, to shoot sparrows with. When I shot some of his prized turkeys with it, he did not punish me. He complimented me on my marksmanship. I killed my first bear in the Caucasus when I was ten. My whole life has been one prolonged hunt. I went into the army, it was expected of noblemen's sons, and for a time commanded a division of Cossack cavalry. But my real interest was always the hunt. I have hunted every kind of game in every land. I would, it would be impossible for me to tell you how many animals I have killed. The general puffed at his cigarette. After the debacle in Russia, I left the country, for it was imprudent for an officer of the Tsar to stay there. Many noble Russians lost everything. I, luckily, had invested heavily in American securities, so I shall never have to open a tear room in Monte Carlo or drive a taxi in Paris. Naturally, I continued to hunt grizzlies in Iraqis, crocodiles in the Ganges, rhinoceroses in East Africa. Those words are all spelled peculiarly, just so you know, like grizzliest. Crocodile is right, but Rhinocero says. Yeah. Not rhinoceros. Is. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Only it was in Africa that do. the Cape Buffalo hit me and laid me up for six months. It ain't Christmas time, Beth. As soon as I recovered, I started for the Christmas Amazon to hunt Christmas music works jaguars. all year long. I'm going to edit you out of this podcast if you keep that nonsense up. It'll just be me reading, and then I'll have to reread parts, and then not cool. Just no more Christmas music. Our listeners aren't here to listen to you sing Christmas music. Our listeners aren't here to listen to me sing anything. Fair enough. As soon as I recovered, I started for the Amazon to hunt jaguars, for I'd heard they were unusually cunning. They weren't, the Cossack side. They were no match at all for a hunter with his wits about him and a high-powered rifle. I was bitterly disappointed. I was lying in my tent with a splitting headache one night, and a terrible thought pushed its way into my mind. Hunting was beginning to bore me, and hunting, remember, had been my life. I have heard that in America, businessmen often go to pieces when they give up the business that has been their life. Yes, that's so, said Rainsford. The general smiled. I had no wish to go to pieces, he said. 
I must do something. Now, mine is an analytical mind, Mr. Rainsford. Doubtless, that is why I enjoy the problems of the chase. No doubt generals are off. So, continued the general, I asked myself why Hunt no longer, or why the Hunt no longer fascinated me. You are much younger than I am, Mr. Rainsford, and have not hunted as much, but perhaps you can guess the answer? What is it? Simply this. Hunting had ceased to be what you call a sporting proposition. It had become too easy, and I always got my quarry. Always. There is no greater bore than perfection. The general lit a fresh cigarette. No animal had a chance with me anymore. That is no boast. It is a mathematical certainty. He starts hunting men. The animal had nothing but his legs and his instinct. Instinct is no match for reason. When I thought of this, it was a tragic moment for me, I can tell you. Rainsford leaned across the table, absorbed in what his host was saying. It came to me as an inspiration what I must do, the general went on. And that was, the general smiled with the quiet smile of one who has faced an obstacle and surmounted it with success. I had to invent a new animal to hunt, he said. A new animal? You're joking. Not at all, said the general. I never joke about hunting. I needed a new animal. I found one. So I bought this island and built this house. And here I do my hunting. This island is perfect for my purposes. There are jungles with a maze of trails in them, hills, swamps, but the animals. Animals. General Zaroff. I tried to combine his name and animals. Anaroff? <laughs> but the animals, General Zaroff. Oh, said the general. It supplies me with the most exciting hunting in the world. No other hunting compares with it. For an instant, every day I hunt, and I never grow bored now. For I have the quarry with which I can match my wits. Rainsford's bewilderment showed in his face. I wanted the ideal animal to hunt, explained the general. So I said, what are the attributes of an ideal quarry? And the answer was, of course, it must have courage, cunning, and above all, it must be able to reason. But no animal can reason, objected Rainsford. My dear fellow, said the general, there is one that can. But you can't mean, gasped Rainsford. And why not? I can't believe you are serious, General Zaroff. Is this a grisly joke? Why should I not be serious? I'm speaking of hunting. Hunting? Great guns, General Zaroff. What you speak of is murder. The general laughed with entire good nature. He regarded Rainsford quizzically. I refuse to believe that so modern and civilized a young man as you seem to be harbors romantic ideas. Beth, wake up. Wake still. What you doing there? Spying Just... out the window. Jeez Louise, pay attention. I'm listening. <sighs> harbors romantic ideas about the value of human life. Surely, your experiences in the war... Did not make me condone cold-blooded murder, finished Rainsford stiffly. Or looking out the window doing podcasts, said EJ stiffly. <laughs> Never tried to shoot you with a gun. Yet. Laughter shook the general. How extraordinarily droll you are, he said. One does not expect nowadays to find a young man of the educated class, even in America, with such a naive and, if I may say so, mid-Victorian point of view. It's like finding a snuff box in a limousine. Oh, well, doubtless you had Puritan ancestors. So many Americans appear to have had. I'll wager you forgot your notions when, er, you'll forget your notions when you go hunting with me. You have a genuine new thrill in store for you, Mr. Rainsford. Thank you. 
I am a hunter, not a murderer. Dear me, said the general, quite unruffled. Again that unpleasant word. But I think I can show you that your scruples are quite ill-founded. Yes? I have scruples. Life is for the... Why would you tell me that you have scruples? Because you were looking at me like I wasn't participating, so I'm participating. Where do you keep your scruples? Sir, ladies do not talk about such things. You brought it up. If I had scruples, I'd keep them in my box. I have a box. Put your scruples in there. And let me tell my story. Life is for the strong. To be lived by the strong, and if need be, taken by the strong. The weak of the world were put here to give the strong pleasure. I am strong, why should I not use my gift? If I wish to hunt, why should I not? I hunt the scum of the earth. Sailors from tramp ships, lassers, blacks, Chinese, whites, mongrels, a thoroughbred horse or a hound is worth more than a score of them. But they are men, said Rainsford hotly. Precisely, said the general. That's why I can use them. It gives me pleasure. They can reason after a fashion, so they are dangerous. But where do you get them? The general's left eyelid fluttered down in a wink. This island is called Ship Trap, he answered. Sometimes an angry god of the high seas sends them to me. Sometimes, when providence is not kind, I help providence a bit. Come to the window with me. Rainsford went to the window and looked out towards the sea. Watch! Out there, exclaimed the general, pointing into the night. Rainsford's eyes saw only blackness, and then, as the general pressed a button far out to sea, Rainsford saw the flash of lights. The general chuckled. They indicate a channel, he said where there is none. Giant rocks with razor edges crouch like sea monsters with jaws wide open. They can crush a ship as easily as I crush this nut. He dropped a walnut on the hardwood floor and brought his heel grinding down on it. Oh yes, he said casually, as if in answer to a question. I have electricity. We try to be civilized here. Civilized? And you shoot men? A trace of anger was in the general's black eyes, but it was there for but a second. And he said, in his most pleasant manner, Dear me, what a righteous young man you are. I assure you, I do not do the things you suggest. That would be barbarous. I treat these visitors with every consideration. They get plenty of good food and exercise. They get into splendid physical condition. You shall see for yourself tomorrow. What do you mean? We'll visit my training school. Smiled the general. It's in the cellar. I have about a dozen pupils down there right now. They're from the Spanish bark San Lucar. That had bad luck to go on the rocks out there. Poor fellows. A very inferior lot, I regret to say. Poor specimens. And more accustomed to the deck than to the jungle. He raised his hand, and Ivan, who served as a waiter, brought thick Turkish coffee. Rainsford, with an effort, held his tongue in cheek. In check. Not talking chic, that's something else. <laughs> We're not talking comedy here, this is serious business. It's a game, you see. Oh, it's not that serious, <laughs> pursued the general blandly. I suggest to one of them that we go hunting. I give him a supply of food and an excellent hunting knife. I give him three hours start. I am to follow, armed only with a pistol of the smallest cal caliber and range. If my quarry eludes me for three whole days, he wins the game. If I find him, the general smiled. He loses. 
Suppose he refuses to be hunted. Oh, said the general. I give him his option, of course. He need not play that game if he doesn't wish to. If he does not wish to hunt, I turn him over to Ivan. Ivan once had the honor of serving as official nouter of the great white czar and has his own ideas of sport. Invariably, Mr. Ransford, invariably, they choose the hunt. And if they win? The smile on the general's face widened. To date, I have not lost, he said. Then he added hastily, I do not wish you to think me a braggart, Mr. Rainsford. Many of them afforded only the most elementary sort of problem. I occasionally strike a tartar. One almost did win, and eventually I had to use the dogs. The dogs? This way, please, I'll show you. <coughs> the general steered Rainsford to a window. The light from the window sent a flickering illumination that made grotesque patterns on the courtyard below, and Rainsford could see moving about there a dozen or so huge black shapes. As they turned toward him, their eyes glittered greenly. A rather good lot, I think, observed the general. They're let out at seven every night. If anyone should try to get into my house or out of it, something extremely regrettable would occur to him. He hummed a snatch of the song from Foley's Begere. I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> And now, said the general, I want to show you my new collection of heads. Will you come with me to the library? I hope, said Rainsford, that you will excuse me tonight, General Zaroff. I'm really not feeling well. Ah, indeed, the general inquired solicitously. Well, I suppose it's only natural after your long swim. You need a good, restful night's sleep. Tomorrow, you'll feel like a new man, I'll wager. And then we'll hunt, eh? I've one rather promising prospect. Rainsford was hurrying from the room. Sorry you can't go with me tonight, called the general. I expect rather fair sport. A big, strong, black. He looks resourceful. Well, good night, Mr. Rainsford. I hope you have a good night's rest. The bed was good, and the pajamas of the softest silk. He was tired in every fiber of his being, but nevertheless Rainsford could not quiet his brain with the opiate of sleep. Poor fella. He lay, eyes wide open. Once he thought he heard stealthy steps in the corridor outside the room. He sought to throw open the door. It would not open. He went to the window and looked out. His room was high up in one of the towers. The lights at the chateau were out now, but it was dark and silent. But there was a fragment of a sallow moon, and by its waning light, he could see dimly the courtyard. There, weaving in and out in the pattern of shadow, were black, noiseless forms. The hounds heard him at the window and looked up expectantly with their green eyes. Rainsford went back to bed and lay down. By many methods, he tried to put himself to sleep. He had achieved a doze when, just as morning began to come, he heard far off in the jungle the faint report of a pistol. General Zaroff did not appear until lunch. He was dressed faultlessly in the tweeds of a country squire. He was salacious about the state of Rainsford's health. As for me, sighed the general, I do not feel so well. I am worried, Mr. Rainsford. Last night I detected traces of my old complaint. To Rainsford's questioning... And the general said, anyway, boredom. Then, taking a second helping of Crepe Suzette, the general explained, the hunting was not I good like last night. I knew that was coming. <laughs> the fellow lost his head. He made a straight trail that offered no problem at all. That's the trouble with these sailors. They have dull brains to begin with, and they do not know how to get about in the woods. They do excessively stupid and obvious things. It's most annoying. Will you have another glass of Chablis, Mr. Rainsford? General, said Rainsford firmly, I wish to leave 
this island at once. This is a really long, short story. I need to have a drink with the general. I have beer. I don't have any. Here we go. The general raised his thickets of eyebrows. He seemed hurt. But my dear fellow, the general protested, you've only just come. You've no hunting. I wish to go today, said Rainsford. He saw the dead black of the general on him, or eyes of the general on him, studying him. General Zaroff's face suddenly brightened. He filled Rainsford's glass with the venerable Chalet from a dusty, dusty bottle. Tonight, said the general, we will hunt you and I. Rainsford shook his head. No, general, he said, I will not hunt. The general shrugged his shoulders, delicately ate a hothouse grape. As you wish, my friend, the choice rests entirely with you. But may I not venture to suggest that you may find my idea of sport more diverting than Ivan's? He nodded toward the corner where the giant stood scowling, his thick arms crossed on his hogshead of a chest. You don't mean, cried Rainsford. My dear fellow, said the general, have I not told you that I always mean what I say about hunting? This is really an inspiration. I drink to a foeman worthy of my steel. At last, the general raised his glass at Rainsford, and he sat staring at him. You'll find this game worth playing said the general enthusiastically your brain against mine your woodcraft against mine your strength and stamina against mine outdoor chess and the stake is not without value eh and if i win began rainsford huskily i'll cheerfully acknowledge myself defeat if i do not find you by midnight of the third day said general zarov my sloop will place you on the mainland near a town the general read what rainsford had been thinking oh you can trust me said the cossack I will give you my word as a gentleman. Oh, yeah, I trust him. Of course, you, in turn, must agree to say nothing of your visit here. I'll agree to nothing of the kind, said Rainsford. You guys, Beth's making faces now. The story's getting a little, a little involved, I think. This is good. She's like, General, beep you. Oh, said the General, in that case. But why discuss it now? Three days hence, we can discuss it over a bottle of Love Cliquois. Whatever. Uh, General's already planning on mounting his head in his library. The general sipped his wine. Then, a business-like air animated him. Ivan, he said to Rainsford, will supply you with hunting clothes, food, a knife. I suggest you wear moccasins. They leave a poorer trail. I suggest, too, that you avoid the big swamp in the southeast corner of the island. We call it Death Swamp. There's quicksand there. One foolish fellow tried it. The deplorable part of it was that Lazarus followed him. You can imagine my feelings, Mr. Rainsford. I loved Lazarus. He was the finest hound in my pack. Well, I must beg you to excuse me now. I always take a siesta after lunch. You'll hardly have time for a nap, I fear. You'll want to start, no doubt. I shall not follow till dusk. Hunting at night is so much more exciting than by day, don't you think? Au revoir, Mr. Rainsford. Au revoir. General Zaroff, with a deep courtly bow strolled from the room. From another door came Ivan. Under one arm he carried khaki hunting clothes, a haversack of food, a leather sheath containing a long-bladed hunting knife. His right hand rested on a cocked revolver thrust in the crimson sash about his waist. Rainsford has fought his way through the bush for two hours. I must keep my nerve. I must keep my nerve, he said through tight teeth. He had not been entirely clear-headed when the chateau gate snapped shut behind him. 
His whole idea at first was to put distance between himself and General Zaroff, and to this end he had plunged along, spurred on by sharp rowers of something very like panic. Now he had a grip on himself. He stopped. He was taking stock of himself in the situation. He saw the straight flight was futile. Inevitably, it would bring him face to face with the sea. He was in a picture with a frame of water, and his operation clearly must take place within that frame. I'll give him a trail to follow, muttered Ransford. He struck off from the rude path he'd been following into the trackless wilderness. He executed a series of intricate loops. He doubled on his trail again and again, recalling all the lore of the fox hunt and all the dodges of the fox. Night found him leg-weary with hands and face lashed by the branches on a thickly wooded ridge. He knew it would be insane to blunder on through the dark, even if he had the strength. His need for rest was imperative, and he thought, I have played the fox, now I must play the cat of the fable. A big tree with a thick trunk and outspread branches was near him, and, taking care not to leave the slightest mark, he climbed up into the crotch and, stretching out on one of the broad limbs after a fashion, rested. Rest brought him excuse me, new confidence and almost a feeling of security. Even so zealous a hunter as General Zaroff could not trace him here, he told himself. Only the devil himself could follow the complicated trail through the jungle after dark. But perhaps the general was a devil. An apprehensive night crawled slowly by like a wounded snake, and sleep did not visit Rainsford, although the silence of a dead world was on the jungle. Toward morning, when a dingy gray and varnishing sky, the cry of some startled birds focused Rainsford's attention in that direction. Something was coming through the bush, coming slowly, carefully, coming by the same winding way that Rainsford had come. He flattened himself down on the limb, and through a screen of leaves, almost as thick as a tapestry, he watched. That which approached him was a man. It was General Zaroff. He made his way along with eyes fixed, in utmost concentration on the ground before him. He paused almost beneath the tree, dropped to his knees and studied the ground. Rainsford's impulse was to hurl himself down like a panther, but he saw the general's right hand held something metallic, a small, automatic pistol. The hunter shook his head several times, as if he were puzzled. Then he straightened up and took from his case one of his black cigarettes. Its pungent incense-like smoke floated up to Rainsford's nostrils. Rainsford held his breath. The general's eyes had left the ground and were traveling inch by inch up the tree. Rainsford froze there, every muscle tensed for a spring, but the sharp eyes of the hunter stopped before they reached the limb where Rainsford lay. A smile spread over his brown face. Very deliberately, he blew a smoke ring into the air. Then he turned his back on the tree and walked carelessly away, back along the trail he had come. The swish of the underbrush against his hunting boots grew fainter and fainter. You have something to say. You were like... Uh-uh. He's totally gonna die. Huh? Who? Rainsford. Well, I, I just feel like uh, the general... Like, he's the best hunter there is. He can totally find anybody. And he didn't have dogs with him. I mean... He could have made a career out of hunting criminals or something. But instead, he's like, no, bring men to I'm just going to kill people. Yeah. Okay, I need to have a drink before I continue on. Thanks for filling up that space with some witty chatter. Woohoo! Witty chatter. 
The pent-up air burst hotly from Rainsford's lungs. His first thoughts made him feel sick and numb. The general could follow a trail through the woods at night. He could follow an extremely difficult trail. He must have uncanny powers. Only by the merest chance had the Cossack failed to see his quarry. Rainsford's second thought was even more terrible. It sent a shudder of cold horror through his whole being. Why had the general smiled? Why had he turned back? Rainsford did not want to believe that his reason or what his reason told him was true. The general's treating <clears throat> cheating and put a tracking device on him, that's why. I feel like this story was a little pre tracking device. Whatever. The general himself is a tracking device, Beth. Rainsford did not want to believe what his reason told him was true, but the truth was as evident as the sun that had him <clears throat> that had by now pushed through the morning mist. The general was playing with him. The general was saving him for another day's sport. The Cossack was the cat, and he was the mouse. Then it was that Rainsford knew the full meaning of terror. I will not lose my nerve. I will not. He slid down from the tree and struck off again into the woods. His face set, and he forced the machinery of his mind to function. Three hundred yards from his hiding place, he stopped where a huge dead tree leaned precariously on a smaller living one. Throwing off his sack of food, Rainsford took his knife from his sheath and began to work with all his energy. The job was finished at last, and he threw himself down behind a fallen log a hundred feet away. He did not have to wait long. The cat was coming in again to play with the mouse. Following the trail with the sureness of a bloodhound came General Zarov. Nothing escaped those searching black eyes. No crushed blade of grass, no bent twig, no mark, no matter how faint, in the moss. So intent was the Cossack on his stalking that he was upon the thing Rainsford had made before he saw it. His foot, foot touched the protruding bough that was the trigger. Even as he touched it, the general sensed his danger and leapt back with the agility of an ape. But he was not quite quick enough. The dead tree delicately adjusted to rest on the cut living one crashed down and struck the general a glancing blow on his shoulders as it fell. But for his alertness, he must have been smashed beneath it. He staggered, but he did not fall nor did he drop his revolver. He stood there rubbing his injured shoulder, and Rainsford, with fear again gripping his heart, heard the general's mocking laugh ring through the jungle. Rainsford, called the general, if you're within sound of my voice, as I suppose you are, let me congratulate you. Not many men know how to make a melee man-catcher. Luckily for me, I too have hunted in Malacca. You're proving it interesting, Mr. Rainsford. I'm going, I'm going now to have my wound dressed. It's only a slight one, but I shall be back. I shall be back. I'll be back. Your short story is really long. You should say that about seven more times just to make sure the audience realizes that this short story is kind of long. Audience, listen to that. I have a hard time giving input in <coughs> anecdotes. It, it wouldn't be quite so long if we didn't have a bunch of edits to splice together. It just seems longer than it is. When the general, nursing his bruised shoulder, had gone, Rainsford took up his flight again. It was flight now, a desperate, hopeless flight that carried him for some hours. Dusk came, then darkness. Still he pressed on. The ground grew softer under his moccasins. The vegetation grew ranker, denser. Insects bit him savagely. Then, as he stepped forward, his foot sank into the ooze. He tried to wrench it back, but the muck sucked viciously, viciously at his foot as if it were a giant leech. With a violent effort, he tore his feet loose. He knew where he was now, Death Swamp, and its quicksand. Quicksand? Quicksand? 
Yeah, quick stand. Nope, nope, don't don't stand up straight and quick stand. It's quicksand. You lay on your back. You kind of do the back float. Then you don't. No, I'll sink. just die. Well, whatever. If you want. His hands were tightly closed, as if his nerve were something tangible that someone in the darkness was trying to tear from his grip. The softness of the earth had given him an idea. He stepped back from the quicksand a dozen feet or so, and like some huge prehistoric beaver, he began to dig. Rainsford had dug himself in in France, when the second's delay meant death. That had been a placid pastime compared to his digging now. The pit grew deeper. When it was above his shoulders, he climbed out and from some hard saplings cut stakes and sharpened them to a fine point. These stakes he planted in the bottom of the pit, with the points sticking up. With flying fingers, he wove a rough carpet of weeds and branches, and with it, he covered the mouth of the pit. Then, wet with sweat and aching with tiredness, he crouched behind the stump of a lightning-charred tree. He knew his pursuer was coming. He heard the padding sound of feet on the soft earth and the night breeze brought him the perfume of the general's cigarette. It seemed to Rainsford that the general was coming with unusual swiftness. He was not feeling his way along, foot by foot. Rainsford crouched there. He could not see the general, nor did he see the pit. He lived a year and a minute, and then he felt impulse to cry aloud with joy, for he'd heard the sharp crackle of the breaking branches as the cover of the pit gave way. He heard a sharp scream of pain as the pointed stakes found their mark. He leapt up from his place of concealment, then he cowered back. Three feet from the pit, a man was standing, with an electric torch in his hand. You've done well, Rainsford, the voice of the general called. Your Burmese tiger pit has claimed one of my best dogs. Again you score, I think, Mr. Rainsford. I'll see what you can do against my whole pack. I'm going home for the rest now. Thank you for a most amusing evening. At daybreak, Rainsford, lying near the swamp, was awakened by the sound that made him know that he had new things to learn about fear. It was a distant sound, faint and wavering, but he knew it was the baying of a pack of hounds. Rainsford knew he could do one so of two cheating. things. He could stay where he was and wait. That was suicide. He could flee. That was postponing the inevitable. For a moment, he stood there thinking. An idea that held a wild chance came to him, and tightening his belt, he headed away from the swamp. The baying of hounds drew nearer, and still nearer, nearer, ever nearer. On a ridge, Rainsford climbed a tree, down a watercourse. Not a quarter of a mile away, he could see the bush moving. Straining his eyes, he saw the lean figure of General Zaroff. Just ahead of him, Rainsford made out another figure whose wide shoulders surged through the tall jungle weeds. It was the giant Ivan. He seemed to be pulled forward by some unseen force. Rainsford knew that Ivan must be holding the pack in leash. They would be on him in a minute now. His mind worked frantically. He thought of a native trick he had learned in Uganda. He slid down the tree. He caught hold of a springy young sapling, and to it fastened his hunting knife, with the blade pointing down the trail. With a bit of wild grapevine, he tied back the sapling, and then he ran for his life. The hounds raised their voices as they hit the fresh scent. Rainsford knew now how an animal at bay feels. He had to stop to get his breath. The baying of hounds stopped abruptly, and Rainsford's heart stopped too. They must have reached the knife. He shitted excitedly up a tree and looked back. His pursuers had stopped, but the hope that Rains or that was in Rainsford's brain when he climbed died. He saw in the shallow valley that General Zaroff was still on his feet, but Ivan was not. The knife, driven by the recoil of the spring tree, had not wholly failed. Rainsford had hardly tumbled to the ground when the pack took up cry again. Nerve, 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 he panted as he dashed along. 
A blue gap showed between the trees, dead ahead. Ever nearer drew the hounds. Rainsford forced himself on towards the gap. He reached it. It was the shore of the sea. Across a cove, he could see the gloomy gray stone of the chateau. Twenty feet below him, the sea rumbled and hissed. Rainsford hesitated. He heard the hounds. Then he leapt far out into the sea. When the general and his pack reached the place by the sea, the Cossack stopped. For some minutes he stood there regarding the blue-green expanse of water. He shrugged his shoulders, then sat down, took a drink of brandy from a silver flask, lit a cigarette, and hummed a bit from Madame Butterfly. <laughs> General Zaroff had an exceedingly good dinner in his great paneled dining hall that evening. With it, he had a bottle of Paul Roger and half a bottle of Chamberton. Two slight annoyances kept him from perfect enjoyment. One was a thought that it would be difficult to replace Ivan. The other was that his quarry had escaped him. Of course, the American hadn't played the game, so thought the general as he tasted his after-dinner liquor. In his library, he read to soothe himself from the works of Marcus Aurelius. At ten, when he went up to his bedroom, he was deliciously tired. He said to himself as he locked himself in, there was a little moonlight, so before turning on his light, he went to the window and looked down at the courtyard. He could see the great hounds, and he called, Better luck another time to them. Then he switched off the light. A man who had been hiding behind the curtains of the bed was standing there. Rainsford! screamed the general. How in God's name did you get in here? Swam, said Rainsford. I found it quicker than walking through the jungle. The general sucked in his breath and smiled. I congratulate you. You have won the game. Rainsford did not smile. I'm still a beast at bay, he said in a low, hoarse voice. Get ready, General Zaroff. The general made one of the deepest bows. I see, he said. Splendid. One of us is to furnish a repast for the hounds. The other will sleep in this very excellent bed. On guard, Rainsford. He had never slept in a better bed, Rainsford decided. So, what did you think? I didn't expect him to live. You didn't? No. Well, why not? Because the general obviously cheats. No, he's just super good at what he does. No, he used his dogs. Oh. He cheats. You You know what? No, that's not that's not fair. I don't hunt, so Your your dad had a hunting dog. Is yeah. Your, is your dad a cheater? That dog was a spaz that just retrieved that's... things. So? Hound hunting was a lot different than it is now, I'm certain, but So Again, that was The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. And it was actually published in a periodical called Collier's way back in 1924. Way back? You know, 1924 has been a couple days. <laughs> they had good music back then. And 1924 is actually part of the 20 years you skipped over during your thing, so this happened then. Uh, nothing significant happened in those 20 years for the Goodwill. The Roaring Twenties weren't so roaring for Goodwill? Crack. Right. But they had say. some really good music. Whatever you say. Whatever. So. Like, it doesn't surprise me that this is one of your favorite short stories, though. Okay, so you said that it reminded you of what? A movie. Which one? I don't remember the like, name of the movie. Like, uh, The Most Dangerous Game? 
from 1932 that was based on it? No. No? It was a newer movie. Oh, jeez. Jeez, Beth. Like in 1945, A Game of Death came out, and that was also based on No, this. it was newer than that. Hmm. What about uh, 1956's no, Run newer for the than Sun? That. Or Bloodlust? That was in 1961. No, newer than that. Again, also based on it. No, newer than that. Hmm. What about Hard Target, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme in 1994, where he was like a Vietnam veteran, and the same kind of thing happened. Yes. But, Really? Yes. That's it? There's a... I only saw that movie once and it creeped me out. There's that Surviving the Game that's got Ice-T and Rutger Hauer in it. That one, too. I suspected. And then The Eliminator came out in 2004. It's got, like, Gary Busey in it, I think. I can't remember for sure. But, yeah. But, like, a bunch of... Rich people are betting on these people getting I've caught. had bad dreams about that movie. The what Ice-T one. What about The Pest? Uh, it's got John Leguizamo. Like, they end up trying to hunt the pest down just because he's so flipping annoying. No. No? But the Ice-T one. That but, for sure is the one that I have bad dreams about. Really? Yeah. Now, what about The Running Man? Because that's loosely based on it, too. Any... Anything like that. I'm pretty sure in one of the radio broadcasts of it, Orson Welles played, probably, I'd guess he played I'm pretty sure I've heard a radio broadcast of something similar to this, because you know how my affinity for listening to old things. This influences all sorts of things. Like, this story was the original version of it, but like Hunger Games, The Running Man, one of my favorite video games of all time, Manhunt, all of these things were influenced by this story. It's a horrible story. Why? You you think that this dude's going to turn the lights on and be like, oh, I'm bored. He's going to let those guys out of the cellar and they're going to get the heck out of there. Well, yeah, but how many people died before that? We don't know. He didn't say. Exactly. But and apparent... he wouldn't go look at the library. <laughs> yeah. Count all the heads. Well, he's going to find out eventually, I imagine. He's not just going to know which room the library is for sure in the big chateau. Okay, okay, okay. I can't wait to see what kind of title you come up with for this. It'll be fine. Headhunting at Goodwill? Jeez Louise. No. Headhunting at Goodwill. Not just headhunting. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's good. We, man. The most dangerous tag? <laughs> I don't know, Beth. I have to consider it. But guys, if you have any suggestions for a topic or a you know public domain story that i could read i still want to hear the craziest thing you found at goodwill we all know it was you that i found there a couple times you did not find me there i I found you there a bunch one time i got lost you were with me when we went in you did not find me there i was lost then i found you no i found you because i never lost you while we were there yeah whatever lost you did you see that use that in a sentence that's the word Whatever you say, Beth. Um, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can contact us through our email. That's alkahunt at gmail.com. We have a Facebook and a Twitter page. If you look up Alkahunt Podcast, you can find us. Oh, yeah. We're all over the social meets. Um, if Sometimes you guys, more than others. If you guys have anything to say about this episode or any episode we've done, we love feedback. And until next time, I've been EJ. I'm Beth. 
Oh, you are? But I was EJ. Huh. What are you now, then? A disappointment. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Prost.